Hi. Welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is behind the scenes where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. This week, we resume our talk with Jay Gaynor and Ken Schwartz as they discuss the process of recreating an 18th century infantry cannon. What are the mechanics of it? Well, uh, this, this was our interest in reproducing the cannon is uh, we have most of the technical components in place. We have a brass foundry, we have a blacksmith shop, we have a wheelwright, we have bricklayers. And the idea was we could all contribute to this project and kind of stretch our technical abilities because uh, the casting of the barrel is much larger than any casting that we've done before. Uh, the, the construction of the furnace was larger and more complex than most of the construction work that the brickmakers had done. Wheelwrights have made gun carriages before, but we had uh, good patterns, uh, good illustrations from the time period that show us uh, the design, the construction. And so our thought was we can further the historic trades mission by stretching our technical abilities and producing this cannon. It sounds as if you have almost everybody working on a piece of this project. Close to it. Mm -hmm. How long will it take? That, that, uh, that is yet to be determined. Uh, with so many of these technologies, um, you know, we're, we're, as I say, we're pushing the, the cutting edge of our knowledge of the technology. We know how to cast little things. We've never cast anything this large. So as we scale up the technology, we find that um, it doesn't always work exactly the same way mm -hmm. at a larger scale. And so we have to relearn the process or learn more about the process. So there's, there's probably a list of 15 or 20 different things that we've never done on this scale. Mm -hmm. And with each one, it's a new test to see if, uh, if we can accomplish that. So sometimes when we, when we uh, try a new technique, um, it won't work out on the first try. We have to figure out how to modify the technology to make it work as it did in the 18th century. Um, so I anticipate the first one is going to take a long time. Uh, you know, we've been working on this for probably six or eight months now. Off and on with bits and pieces, yeah. Um, and we probably will have another six or eight months before the whole thing's put together. Um, and, and part of that is the trial and error of learning the, the new techniques or larger scale techniques. I mean, we're taking stuff that was written 210, 250 years ago, and so we're trying to figure out what they said and probably more importantly what they didn't say because everybody took this aspect of it for granted. And so, you know, we, we take our experience and we try to dovetail it with what they're telling us how to do. Sometimes, if we're lucky, we're very successful right off. Other times we're not, but that's what historic trades is all about. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of what we're here to do is to preserve what we know, but just as importantly, we really have a, a pretty pa passionate group of folks that are trying to figure out, you know, not just how to make something that looks like the old one, but to get there exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you get inside of the heads of the people that were doing it, you begin to figure out what their motives are, how they're dividing up the work, how they're choreographing the stuff. Um, Going back to your candlestick, one reason that they cast the thing in two halves and soldered it together is, is, as you both said, to save material, but it's a heck of a lot more work. It'd be a lot faster just to cast it as a solid piece. And it reflects this 
very important reality of the 18th century that materials are almost always worth significantly more than the labor. And there's always little glitches like that that come into it. And so, yeah, you can get frustrated if you want to, or you can say, wow, um, never thought about it like that. Let's try this. It, the other thing is we look at original documents that describe these techniques. Um, it's very, very difficult to put in writing the nuances of the process. In other words, there's, there's so much of this technology that relies on the judgment of the workman. And the only way that you can learn appropriate judgment is through experience. You really can't communicate that in writing. That's why these trades were passed on in an oral tradition and not through classroom learning. And so when we look at this document, we've got a framework to work from that describes the basic process. But when we operate the furnace, we'll be looking for other clues, the color of the flame, whether, uh, you know, whether it's producing smoke a certain way, the color of the material, the texture of the material, uh, and all of these things give us a clue as to what's happening in the furnace and when we're, uh, we're ready to pour. You've got to be able to read the flame to see when it's ready. Right. Well, and to me, that's the, that's the importance of historic trades and the program that we have here. The goal is to keep a body of skilled workmen involved in these kind of trades and, again, learning new things, pushing the envelope, uh, and passing that information on to the next generation so that it's not lost. Yeah, and I don't know so much about making cannon, uh, but I think a lot of what we do may be saving alternative technologies or at least keeping people's minds open to alternative ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting that the main book written about the, the whole gun founding operations in the 18th century is the art of gun founding. It's not the skill of gun founding, it's not the process of gun founding, it's not the technology of gun founding, it's the art of gun founding. And so much of what we do is in that gray area between you know, very methodical, very rational, uh, very straightforward approaches to things and that gut feeling that, that this is the time it's ready or this is how I've got to hit it or this is how it's going to move. And without both of those, it didn't going to work. Why bronze? Why not lead or steel or something else? Bronze is, um, it, it's defined as the kind of gun metal that we're using. It's 90% it's copper and 10% tin. And what that does is it gives you the right combination of strength and flexibility. And so it, it gives you a, a tube that you can fire that will withstand the stresses that that, that entails uh, without fatiguing to the point that it, that it ends up, you know, self-destructing or exploding. And some of those other metals you mentioned are either too soft to withstand the pressure or they're too brittle uh, to hold together under that much pressure or they, they work harden with time. That is, they may work the first dozen times, but every time you fire it, the stress makes the metal a little bit harder and eventually it begins to develop cracks and it'll fail. They're making guns out of iron as well and Ken can probably talk better about that, about the advantages of iron versus bronze guns, or disadvantages. They're cheaper, a lot cheaper. Right. They're, uh, they, they also have to be heavier to overcome the brittleness of cast iron. Um, you know, that's, that's one of those materials that uh, works sufficiently, but 
if there's any flaw in it, uh, you know, you don't want to be around it when it's being uh, shot. How long will it last? <laughs> we hope a long time, but, but every, everybody keeps asking, are you going to fire this thing? And um, I have to say that unless somebody says, no, you can't, yes, you can't make a cannon without testing it. <laughs> uh, but I also think we're going to go find a big, big open field somewhere and put a very long fuse in it and run like the Dickens in the other direction when we light it and, um, you know, hope that it, because we'll do it with a proof load, which is going to be more than a, you know, a standard load would be. Um, our expectation is that unless there's a hidden flaw in the casting or something like that, that it will be as good as an 18th century one. And if that's the case, and we use it for, I mean, the frequency with which we would use it for live fire is very small. I mean, we'll probably test it, we'll probably shoot a few rounds just to see what's involved in doing it. But I think most of the time it's going to live in the historic area and be used for programming. And if it's fired there, we'll be firing it with blanks like we do our other artillery pieces. Uh, you're going to make another? I mean, once you learn how... Well, we're not going to do two. We're going to cast this, this smaller gun, which is a mortar, designed to sit fairly upright and you know, lob shells at a high altitude. That, that's, that's our test pour. And assuming that works, um, We'll have one. If there's some glitches, we may have two or three or four before it's all over until we get the process down. We're talking about casting one light three at this point. Um, but if it's successful and our guests get involved in it and the, the museum and military history and technology folks seem to get involved in it, then I'd like to do more than one. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a big project to do as a one-time only and then that'd be it. Well, the other thing is we're developing the infrastructure that if we wanted to do larger castings of other objects, you know, we'll have the furnace, we'll have the knowledge. Um, so this furnace can be used for a lot more than just artillery pieces, potentially. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Let us know what you think about the show. Tell us at history.org slash podcasts. Follow the progress of the cannon's construction on the blog at history.org slash cannon. Check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.